song Come Together. Uh, it's one of those really fascinating songs. It was originally written, actually, to be um, a campaign song back in the uh, late 60s for the California governor's race. Uh, it never made it because the individual who actually requested John Lennon to write this song for his campaign um, got arrested a couple weeks before. And so as a result, the song never actually made it to the campaign, campaign trail. Instead, John Lennon decided he liked the song so much that he rolled it into Abbey Road, which became the Beatles' biggest selling album at the time. And then on top of that, this song come together became its greatest hit. And so a song that was accidentally written to kind of collect and gather and capture the spirit of this governor's race that if we came together, we could change California, ended up never getting played on a stage for someone to run for their governor's race, but it did come together on the Abbey Road album in a way that it still kind of captures that same sentiment. That's what I love about this song is it captures the power and the potential of we. That we live in a culture that's consumed by the me, but this song was meant to really rally a people in the late 60s around this idea that what if, in a, in a society that was increasingly becoming more me-centered, what if we work together to see our state get better? And, uh, and so that's why we wanted to kick off that song, because in some ways that song captures, I think, the spirit of what first um, drew me to the church after I became a Christian was the power of the we, that there's something special about the church and there's something powerful about when a group of me say, we want to be part of a bigger we that does something great. And in fact, not just that, uh, the part of, that really drew me in was I remember reading through the New Testament after I became a Christian and being blown away and then digging into history and studying church history and Christian history and realizing that there has always been, even embedded in the very first accounts of this thing called the church forming, a we that he intended us to be. That there was this we that he intended, that he desired that we would be and reflect. And in the course of everyday life and in the course of our gatherings on Sunday, and there's a picture, a story that I want to tell you through this morning that's a really kind of brief story. It happens really fast, but I think it's a story that captures in living form what this we is supposed to look like what this we, he intended us to be, kind of what the distinctives were of that group. It's a story found that uh, Mark, the second book of the New Testament, captures in the very second chapter. And kind of to set the tone, Jesus, who for 30 years is kind of operating, whether it's he's being trained to be a rabbi or he's in the construction industry, we're not 100% sure. But what we do know is that the most famous individual who has ever lived around age 30 becomes public. That at age 30, he is swept into this public tide. He begins his official public ministry and, and starts doing incredible, incredible things. That there are miracles, there are powerful teachings, and people start to gather around this guy named Jesus from this really rural, backwoods setting of, of this small nation in the middle of the Middle East. This guy named Jesus, who becomes this overnight sensation, is starting to travel around. And in Mark chapter 1, you kind of get a sense of that. Because Mark is a book that moves really quickly. Mark 2, you find Jesus coming off of his first ministry tour. He's, he's begun to, to work and teach and perform these miraculous acts and in and around this kind of northern part of Israel where he grew up. And, and people are starting to notice him. People are starting to be drawn to him. 
And in the midst of that, um, he, he returns home to Capernaum. And uh, the, the fascinating thing about the book of Mark is it's the second book in the New Testament, but what we believe, what historically has kind of been attributed is that Mark, while is the writer, Mark essentially does extensive um, face-to-face interviews with Peter, who's one of Jesus' most famous disciples. And uh, Peter is the guy who gives um, most of the description, source material. Mark is not around for the entire ministry of Jesus, but Peter is. And it's Peter who tells Mark that Mark actually ends up writing it down. And this is important because there are parts of the book of Mark that when you read it, you kind of pick up on this emphasis of Peter or this first case kind of these like descriptions of events through Peter's eyes. And it's because Peter is the material. He's the interview that helps to forge and form this book. And so by chapter 2, you have this sense he's returned back to Capernaum. He's taking a bit of a break, but it says that in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, and if you have the Encounter Church app, you can go ahead and fire it up, and it's in the message notes. It's already there for you. It'll show 1 through 12, but we're only going to be in 1 through 4 today. I just wanted to give you the full context so you have a sense of what is this full story that's unfolding. Um, but what I want to focus in on is the individual's that this story is, is focused on. That Peter, when he's telling this story to Mark, this is a, one of those memories that jumps out at him, that captures the spirit of this early kind of work of Jesus. It says that a few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, this is a small village in that, that region, the people heard that he had come home. And so at this point, like I said, Jesus has become famous. That this, he's kind of the sensational rabbi slash miracle worker in this region. And people hear that he's done with his tour and he's returning home. And so people have started to kind of gather. They've, they've stopped looking for him out there. They now know where he is. And so they, they kind of rush Capernaum and overnight the population explodes. And Jesus is, kind of gives you an early glimpse of the popularity that Jesus has that these people surround us this house that he's staying in, they press in, they fill it up. And even in the midst of taking a break from the tour, Jesus has no break. Um, It's begun. For 30 years, he's been a nobody that's hardly been noticed. And now, overnight, he's this sensational miracle worker. And it says that so many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And then verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. I want to just stop there because this is the group of guys I want to focus in on. This is a group of guys that in the course of this story, only a few verses will be told about them, but it's this small group of guys that I think is a living picture of the we that he intends us to be. This story were to be unfolded and unpacked a little bit more is an ESPN 30 for 30 waiting to happen. Right? It's, it's this powerful Netflix documentary that would just be primed to hit and go large. Because what you see is a group of friends, a community of people who, I don't know exactly what happens or how it happens, but some, somewhere along the line, one of them or all of them hear about Jesus. They either see Jesus perform miracles or they hear from people they trust that Jesus is performing miracles. And they begin to talk, and they begin to dialogue, and, and they realize that their friend, who's paralyzed, if he had been there when Jesus was on that tour, he'd be walking now. And so they start to scheme. They buy a one-way ticket because they've got a plan 
to take their friend and put him in front of Jesus. And we know that there's more than four of them because we see that there are some men and that in the group of that some, there are four of them that have carried him. And, and it's a simple sentence, but I want to dig into it because there's a character trait. There's this characteristic about this community that I think is powerful. is that these guys were hopeful. When's the last time you've had a friend who would move heaven and earth to get you to somewhere that they believe would make a difference? I mean, this isn't that, hey, hey, man, I heard about this great guy. I hope you can work it out in your schedule. It's that these guys hear about what Jesus has done and what he is doing, and they decide that they've got to put him on a blanket and carry him to Capernaum. This isn't buying a bus ticket. This isn't getting a plane ride. This isn't easy travel. For any of us who've ever carried a small child a long distance, you understand after a while, even 20 to 25 pounds starts to be excruciatingly painful. And yet here's a group of men who are carrying a grown man miles and miles and miles across rough terrain. And what, what motivates them is their hopefulness. These men are sincerely motivated by hope. And that's the first characteristic of, I think, a community that he intends us to be, that we are to be a hopeful people. That you hear us say every single Sunday that we believe this should be the most hopeful and helpful part of your week. I love this living picture of a group of men who, who care enough about their friend that their friend could simultaneously be who he is, and yet they still have the sense of hope and love and care for him that his best days were still in front of him. I mean, do you have people surrounding you right now who love you for where you are, but yet love you enough that they still believe that your best can still be in front of you? Your best relationship, your best days are still in front of you. People who can surround your marriage and believe where you are right now that the best can still be in front of you. That's what marks these people, hopefulness. This genuine, we're in it together. And they grab the sheet and they carry them. I love it. You can kind of start to see ESPN, right? And the slow music and the violin, and the different faces, and the blanket being carried, and the wind, and the dirt, right? And the shot of the guy on the side as he's straining, as he's carrying his friend, and like the tear, slow tear, like the, you know what I'm talking about, the man tear, where he's like not acknowledging that he's crying. It's like the dust and the, the dirt, but it's coming from the side. Because he's just said his friend's name, Jeff. And it's like, man. And you can watch it, even in the opening sequence of your mind, And say, wow, that's a community of people I want to be with. They may not agree with me. I may not always agree with them. But they have more hope for me than anyone else. And they're willing to jump in with me. And even carry me in the hard moments. This is this picture. It's a sentence, but it's powerful. Man, it's beautiful what you see there. I think the challenge is that hope is one of those things that if, you, if you're not around it enough, you can get lost in the definition. You see, when I was in my mid-20s, um, actually, if you've ever met my little girl, 
uh, one of the things that you'll notice really quickly when you first meet her, besides that she's beautiful and that she, she is very much her own little person and is about 15 years old, trapped in that small body, is that the, the first physical characteristic that you know is this long, long curly hair. I mean, long, like flowing Goldilocks kind of hair. And, uh, and, and you may be tempted to think that that came from my wife, but in fact, it came from me. That was my idea. Okay? And in my mid-20s, I had hair. And, and it was beautiful. People would travel for miles around just to take pictures of it. Not really, but I tell myself that. But I loved my hair enough that I had, quite boldly as a man, let me state it clearly, I had a stylist who did my hair. I was like, take care of what's happening up there, right? I mean, I'd go, she'd wash it, clean it, and then she'd style it. But around my mid-20s, something started happening. It started falling out. And it kind of started right here. And then it quickly kind of like involved into what looked like one of those like armies retreating really quickly from another invading army of baldness. And I remember my stylist like, because she's, like, spending more time up there than I am, was watching it and said, you know, you're losing your hair. Like, okay. Um, I've got a wonderful product that'll fix it. Really? Yes. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's a little expensive, but it'll make a difference. It'll, it'll stop your hair from falling out. And I'm like, girl, whatever that is, give it to me. Because I got to save this. And so she gives me this $40 shampoo bottle. Don't judge me, okay? This $40, bottle, this $40 bottle of shampoo. And she's like, you use this, and it's going to stop that hair from falling out. So I'm in the shower, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I am like lathering it in. Get in the mirror. Oh, okay, I don't think anything fell out. Good. And it's like, as the months kept going, I noticed that it wasn't working. Well, it takes a little bit of time. Your body's got to get acclimated to the really expensive shampoo. And so I bought more expensive shampoo. And after a few months, I just came to the conclusion after losing more and more and more and more hair that this shampoo is not working. You see, I was completely going bald. And no amount of money that I was spending on this, like, suave stuck in a $40 French bottle was going to save my hair. But what had happened was I had bought into hype. I had not bought into hope. And it's really easy, I think, in our culture is that we live surrounded by people who are really good at hype. The greatest phone ever. Best vacation you'll ever have. You've got Matthew McConaughey doing his weird thing with that car that he's always driving around in. <laughs> like it's the greatest thing ever. We live in a culture that hypes things. That believes if you just say it louder and you say it harder, then it must be true. Spend more money, make it a bigger launch. Of course it's true. And these guys weren't about hype. You see, I think hype has a lot of talk, but it's not followed up with walk. All right, because have you ever noticed that it's the greatest phone, but 365 days later it's not? The new greatest phone is here. You need to buy that one. Get rid of the old greatest phone. It's not needed anymore. You see, hype is about talk. It sounds big, but its walk is basically nothing. I think hype typically ends in disappointment. But hope, 
Hope actually fuels determination. Hope hits a roadblock and it doesn't stop. It doesn't get redirected. It doesn't second guess itself. Right? And you find that in verse 4. It says that since, so they bring this guy and it says, since they could not get, to get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. I mean, so these guys have hope. They arrive. They see the crowd. And their hopefulness turns into helpfulness. Which is, I think, the second characteristic of this community that he intended us to be. We're not just to be a people who have hope. We're meant to be a people whose hopefulness translates into helpfulness. And their hope does fuel determination. I love it, right? They get there. And let's just be honest. It could have stopped with verse 3 and everyone would have applauded these group of guys. They would have been like, these are extraordinary men who made such a big difference. They carried their friend from a long way. I'm okay with just having friends like that who would be willing to carry me with hope. But these guys get there and they see the crowd and they're looking and they're sizing it up. And one of their friends, who I think probably had a mullet, his name was MacGyver, leaned back and said, hmm, guys, I see another way. You see, instead of heading back, we should head up. And they're like, ooh. And they climb up on top of the house. And they're, and they hear Jesus. They're like, he's right underneath us. And the mullet guy, MacGyver, he says, we should dig a hole. Brilliant. You see, back then, houses were really similar to what you would find maybe in a third world, like mud hut. Uh, the houses were makeshift mud bricks. And so it meant with a little bit of work and some, some kind of elbow grease, you could actually start to dig through it and break through it. And that's what these guys start to do. They start to, to claw a little bit, and they start to dig a little bit. And, and, I, and I love it. It's like Jesus notices it. But I think kind of what really happens, imagine you're inside this house. All these people have pressed in. Here's Jesus, and he's teaching, and he's speaking. And you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm this close. Like, if you've ever been to a concert, and you're in the front row, it's a big deal. Like, you're like, how awesome is this? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you feel a little bit of dirt on your head. You're like, what? And maybe the first thought is like, this place is about to come down. But then that dirt turns into a little tiny hole and there's a pin light cutting through. And then a bigger pin light. And then there's this early start of a hole. And then you start to notice this hand reaching in, yanking out. And it becomes larger and larger too. It gets so large that it's literally big enough to drop a man through it. Now here's why I told you that Mark writes this eyewitness account off of Peter. It's because many people believe that this house is Peter's house. Which is why when Mark is sitting down with Peter, he's like, tell me about it. He was like, let me tell you, one time I was at home and these crazy suckers ripped a hole through my roof to get to Jesus. Because wouldn't you remember if someone ripped a hole through your roof because of a house guest you had? Because this is the determination these guys have. They're like, we've got to get him in front of him. 
It's this hopefulness that fuels this determination that becomes this helpfulness. And I love it. I love the mark and the spirit of these kind of guys who are willing to break through literally a roof to set it up. Now, maybe for some of you, you hear that. And right now inside of you, what you feel is a tension. You say, I love the living picture of people who've been hopeful and helpful. But when I think of church, I don't think help. I think hurt. Let's just be real. Some of us, it's a different H word that comes to mind when we think about the church. It's, It's hurt. It's grief. It's misguided people saying misguided things. Uh, in college, uh, my junior year, I uh, actually lived overseas for a course of about a month and a half. I, I lived in, in Thailand, and, um, and we did work in rural villages with kind of marginalized people, and uh, we were there teaching English, and it was an incredible experience, and one of the things that we did was we put on an English camp, because especially back then, I'm getting older, but back then, um, English was a really, uh, really profitable really kind of opened some door to future college opportunities. But because these were marginalized people, the Thai government didn't expose them to things that could actually help them as a people. And so we were there kind of helping teach them English. And um, because of that, our hosts, which were incredibly gracious, wanted to make sure that we uh, felt appreciated. And so they would throw these elaborate meals, and these meals were um, different, to say the least. Uh, One of them... Uh, It was the second day, and they brought us, the first night we'd had this really painful piece of meat that when I bit it, it burned my lips and my tongue and my throat and my, like, I don't remember all those parts of physiology and anatomy, but all those parts burned. And I felt it. It was like having a tracking device on that piece of meat. I could just feel it moving. And that was all I had. And then for lunch that day, they gave us chicken, but it was powdered chicken sandwiches. Have you ever bit into a chicken sandwich and seen it... On the other side, that'll do something to you. It really will. But they set it up, and we had our next day, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be positive today. I'm going to do this right. And so they bring us rice with a fried egg. And I'm like, all right, now we're talking. I can do rice in a fried egg. That's actually pretty good, you know? Um, and so I'm sitting there, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Not done. I'm like, no, this is good. This is done. Like, no, 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 because I'm hungry. Because at this point, the powdered chicken and, and the, like, nuclear piece of meat, I, I was starting to fill it. And, um, and so they were like, no, 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 sauce. I was like, okay, sauce. And they pour the sauce all over my rice and my fried egg. And they're like, no, it's good, it's good. And they walk off. And I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to cut up my fried egg. And uh, I'm... I'm Noticing there's little specks. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's pepper. So I start leaning down. Like, this weird-looking pepper. Lean down some more. Then I noticed there were a lot of them. And then I realized that a bulk of this sauce was little tiny baby squids. Everywhere. All over my rice and my fried egg. I'm like, how are they going to mess up rice and fried egg? With baby squid. Like, I don't even have the Food Channel chef in my head to think, what we should pair with rice and fried egg is baby squid. No! 
I, I, like at this point, I'm just being real with you. I am so, so hungry, and I'm staring at this plate with little tiny baby squid. And when they're that small, you're not sure if they're moving or if it's just the juice flowing. And I remember thinking, I'm done with food forever. <laughs> not eating anything. I got enough stored up. I can last a good, like, month and a half. But you see, the reality is that many of us have had those kind of negative experiences with church, and that's our tendency to. As we allowed a few bad experiences to redefine a history of who we've been. We've allowed those, and they're painful, but we've allowed the few painful, misguided moments to redefine what has intended to always be a picture of the way he intended us to be. And, and I'm sincerely sorry if you've had those hurtful experiences, but you wouldn't do that with food. And you have loved ones in your life, because I've talked to some of them, who have written off church, and they've written off God because of a few people who've created this. And while I completely understand it, we don't do the same with food. I've still eaten since then. I don't struggle, obviously. And, and what I would encourage you to do is if maybe that's you or that's a loved one, is to, to lean in and say, okay, maybe, maybe church needs to be redefined for me because I've allowed this relatively few experience that I've been exposed to to completely redefine the whole history of who the church has been. And I'm not trying to make light of what you've gone through. I'm just saying that perhaps, perhaps there is a better living picture. And these men, they're that living picture. They're hopeful and they're helpful. That's why even over the last year as a church, because this isn't theoretical, this is practical, this is what we do. That's why over the last year, we've been able to mobilize about 10,000 volunteer hours in our community in the greater Boston area. I was doing the math. I was like 10,000 volunteer hours. We've picked up trash, we've pulled weeds, we've done small, we've done large, all because we really genuinely believe a church should be both hopeful and helpful. That we've helped to create memories, positive memories towards the church for almost a thousand families over the last year with our community events. We're not asking them to pay anything, we're not trying to bait and switch or trick them into some kind of religious presentation, we just simply believe a church should be hopeful and helpful. And that's why we serve, and that's why we love, and that's why we create these moments. We've been able to contribute over $75,000 since we started to making this community better, whether it's building a local playground, whether it's donating to PTA boards, to, to making a difference in our country and being part of disaster relief, or helping to start churches who are like us, who have that impulse to be hopeful and helpful, start all around America to making a difference globally, where we are part of a group of people who step into disasters, who welcome refugees who are fleeing the evils of war and tyranny. Like, that's who we are. That's who you are. That's what we're a part of. Because we believe a church should be hopeful and it should be helpful. It should make a difference wherever it is. Not because we've come up with something new, but because we believe the church has been around a long time and that is who we are and that is what we do. 
And we've been able to do all of that with just seven hours a week in this space. This is incredible. Seven hours a week, one year, and this is the difference we've made. Some of you have seen and felt because you've told us not just all this impact everywhere else, but you've felt the difference Encounter Church has been for your own personal life. And that this really is the most hopeful and helpful part. But that, all of that, that's just chapter one. The book's just getting started. Chapter two, it's about to begin. And in chapter two, there's even more we can do. Welcome to Encounter Church's new home. Just a mile and a half from Dedham Middle School is a 10,000 square foot space at the intersection of I-95 and Highway 1. This new space will allow us to create environments for families, kids, and will give us an auditorium where we can have the type of services that we've dreamed of having. It'll allow us to do what we've always said we believe we're in this community to do, to demonstrate that a church should be known for what they do for the community, not what they take from. And this new space, our new home, will allow us to provide even greater hope for our community. So I want to welcome you to your new home. And this is the start of chapter two, a story and a filled with, I, I think, even greater hope than what we've experienced in the last year because I just told you what we've done with seven hours a week. Imagine what we're going to be able to do in a space seven days a week, right? I mean, that's incredible. And while there, there's a lot to, to dialogue and discuss about this space and that we will do that in the next few weeks as we work out some of those logistics and as we are trying to finalize architectural plans. Uh, but we, we tentatively see by May us being able to move into this space uh, that we kind of see a ramp up with construction, permitting, and all of that that gets us in by May. Uh, there's um, a lot of those details that right now we can't answer questions about of how much and what's it going to cost and how can I be a part of it and, and how do we lean into this to make this happen. But let me, let me tell you a little bit post-May because I know there are some questions that I can't answer to get us to May, but here's what I do have. I do have some answers for what happens after May. I just want to unpack that and spend a little bit of our time together discussing that. You see, this space is going to allow us to have places to do those things that we've been dreaming about doing ever since we first started meeting here. That we recognize that there are a lot of marriages, even out of last week, who say, man, I want my marriage to be stronger, or we're going through a really rough time, or I'm not sure if I know how to do this right. And to be able to carve out a space and, and roll out a program that's been used nationally, that's helped to bring couples back together. Literally, this, this program that we're going to be engaging with, couples who'd gotten divorced, who agreed to go through it together, came out on the other side and got remarried. We want to create spaces that can strengthen marriages and build families and create those kind of spaces where dialogue and community or hopefulness and helpfulness can actually happen. Not just seven hours a week, but seven days a week. We want to carve out a place for those who feel stuck and trapped and kind of life 
Not just because of addictions, but because maybe anger struggles and these kind of tension points that you have to be able to carve out space where we can step into the tension points with you along with other people and come out on the other end of those tension points into a place of freedom. A church space where you don't have to have it perfect or figured out to be a part of it, but that through it together we can become perfected. And being honest and being humble and working through those tension points in our lives. A place and space where some of you will find a safe place to dialogue about faith and ask questions that you've had inside of you for a long time but never felt safe enough to be able to ask them. A place for some of those who are here who have a Christian faith, who want to grow in it, to find that there is a picture and a living realness to our faith that maybe you haven't even touched on yet. And to to have that kind of space where we can help you grow and deepen in your faith. Because while I think Sunday is the most helpful and, and like hopeful hour, there is a day where Sunday, I believe, will not be the most helpful and like hopeful part of the week because you will go out during your week and you will be most helpful and hopeful people that people meet. And that what you do Monday through Saturday will be so much more powerful and impacting than even what we do on Sunday because we've been able to carve out spaces to do that. And to be able to to take what's happening in our family area, right? Where last week Jenny's up here and we're interviewing and in the back of her mind she's thinking, I've got the largest preschool group I've ever had. And she's a stud, and she can be up here because she's worked that and developed leaders and and has a great environment. But elementary is feeling that same tension. And we know that many of you have teenagers. And Jason and I were involved with student ministry for 10-plus years. And we were involved with really large student ministry. And we know how important it is for a student to have a space where they can find and walk in the freedom of already being loved by him, not going out into their community making foolish choices, trying to earn love from them. There's a confidence in learning how to make wise choices and to be able to carve out and create this student environment that's just as dynamic as what your kids love about preschool and elementary, but have it for middle schoolers and high schoolers. Like There's so much about this area There's so much about this space that gets us excited, and we look forward to kind of unpacking that more for you in the days ahead. But here's where I wanted to kind of leave us today, that I wanted us as a people to kind of rally around who we are, to celebrate what God has done in the last year and what I believe God's going to do in this next year. And if you're, if you're a guest here today and this is your first time ever, I, I apologize that maybe if they're like, this man is normally really like practical and it's really helpful and it goes straight to this and da-da-da-da-da. And, and you're like, I showed up today and they handed me a bucket and they showed me a video and I didn't get anything that helped me in this moment, right? Rain check it to next Sunday because we're getting ready to start a new series called Address the Mess and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And we're going to lean into all those things that you were promised today normally looks like. But what we wanted to do today is as a people pause and just have a celebration and to dream. What could we as a people with a space seven days a week, what kind of hope and what kind of help could we demonstrate? What kind of environments could we create? And so our, our, in our kind of typical response home where we kind of carve out this kind of reflection time, uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different. The, the 
band's going to lead us in a song. And I know some of us, uh, if maybe you're like me, and you're like, sometimes I struggle to pray. I try to pray, and I start with praying, and then it turns into a shopping list or my to-do list, or I start praying, and then it turns into like, and by the end, there's somehow SpongeBob SquarePants has gotten involved, and you're just like, what just happened? I tried to pray, and, and then it just kind of got off over here. Um, and so what we wanted to do is kind of lead us in a response time with a prayer. And it's this song that you've probably never heard before, but it's called The Church. And this song is meant to, to serve as a context for us to just pray the words. That it's this beautiful picture of what I believe we're, we're called to be. Because in the end, he had something in mind when he created this we. It's like, this is the we, this is the way I intended it to be. To be a people of hope, to be a people of help, who live in such a way that it demonstrates the beauty at the heart of Christianity, a God who stepped into this earth, who gave us hope when we had no hope and helped us when we could not help ourselves, who sends us out fully loved, forgiven with grace and mercy and compassion to step into our circles and to step into our cubicles and our boardrooms and in our bedrooms and demonstrate not some religious idea or some theological theory, but to do in practice what he has done for us. To be the church. To be the we he intended us to be.